God and Christians and civil government. I selected that particular lesson title because I thought perhaps there would be an element of appropriateness to it this day, but not only appropriateness because I'm not in any way suggesting as a part of this lesson that some of these direct things we are facing, but it does at least remind us the things we're facing that it is not at all unimaginable that there could be moments of tension between what men may say and what the Bible sets before us. And what does a Christian do in a situation like that one? I guess to put it more broadly, what should be a Christian's viewpoint toward and understanding of the civil government? I'd like to use this lesson to develop some of those points and, of course, matters concerning some of it we may elaborate further on in succeeding lessons or at least in future times. But at the top of that slide, you probably have already become about as sick as I am of seeing references to COVID-19. It has become a dominant force. Who would ever have thought at Christmas time that in less than three months... It would have taken a worldwide toll with decision-making in economies and lives in the way that it has. And yet, it continues to ramp upward and onward. Needless to say, there are decisions and there are things that are being impacted in your life and mine every day. For that reason, may we be thankful for the anchoring of the Word of God the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that surrounds it in a world that can so often move with whims and fancies, we have something that is never going to change. No wonder in that light. Let me ask you to very quickly and somewhat briefly notice a few points we can say about our relationship and our viewpoint towards civil governments. The first thing that must be loudly exclaimed is that God ordained civil government. By their nature, they're not opposed in their existence to Him. Consider the following thoughts with me. First of all, the Word of the Lord has really, from the very first chapter in Genesis, begun to implant within our thinking the understanding that God respects authority. He put it in place in the family. The husband is said to be the head of that family. He's the head of the wife. Not only that, in the church, it is the will of God. There be men, we call them bishops or elders or overseers, and they occupy this role of authority. And so often, in fact, they are said to be those overseers, Acts 20, verse 28. But may I say, those aren't the only two examples. Civil government, the very existence of civil government, again, is in perfect harmony with that which is the will of God. I would invite you to quickly notice texts such as John 19, 11. From the very lips of the Son of God Himself, you might recall He was in fact on trial before the authorities that were going to lead to His ultimate crucifixion. And to Pilate, He directly said, were it not for God, you'd have no authority at all. In other words, the authority vouchsafed to Pilate in that pagan, heathen Roman Empire, the very nature of that authority that He enjoyed was due to the bequeathing of it from the God of heaven. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, perhaps the most well-known passage that highlights this, that speaks about the existence of civil governments. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. That says it pretty plainly. 
Paul quickly informs us the higher powers to which he refers are civil governments. And he says there, God has bequeathed to them or given them the right to exist. Now, surely you and I would quickly notice how awful it is when there's an absence of proper authority. We have noted in the book of Judges, haven't we often, what happens when there's no king in Israel? It couldn't have been much worse. And today, any place in which there's not a respect for that authority is in a place of anarchy, a place of confusion and chaos. We'd be quick to say, God nowhere in His Word stamps His approval on only one kind of government. He lets men choose that. Some countries choose municipalities such as kingships. There are some countries that have a king. There are other places that have a republic like we have here in America. There are other places that have more recognized as a confederacy. Point is, God respects the authority, but He hasn't selected the particular kind that He demands that men also choose. But the second point is this one. We find often in the Word of God a rather powerful involvement on the part of God with the activities of civil government. Let's just note a few examples if we might. I've invited your consideration. Several times in the Psalms, it overwhelmingly says, God governs the nations. And he wasn't just talking about Israel. Psalm 22, verse 28. Psalm 67, verse 4, both in a verbatim way say, God governs over the nations. Now that means whether they honor Him or not, and many nations preferentially choose not to, that doesn't change the fact He can use them to carry out His will in a larger, broader context. You might also notice in that regard how sweet it was to hear the prophet Daniel put it in these words, God rules in the kingdoms of men. Three times in Daniel chapter 4 that statement is found. God rules in the kingdoms of men. In that day and time, you and I remember that the circumstances of the ancient empires, they had given way. Babylon had given way to Medo-Persia. And yet, in that day and time, it still could be affirmed, God rules in the kingdoms of men. No wonder in that connection, in that light, the next point is this one. Do you recall with me some instances in the Word of God in which the happenings concerning governments, the rising of them or the fall of them, were particularly orchestrated by the God of heaven. Sodom and Gomorrah. Here were well-recognized cities of the plain, and yet due to their sin, they were wiped out. Regardless what their government supported, and you and I noticed what they supported was evil, and God overruled in those matters. Later on, you notice the confederacy in Israel in Judges 3, verses 8 and 9, the people of God had made some poor choices and God raised up the Mesopotamians. And for eight years, they oppressed, they made the Israelite lives miserable, and God was behind it. Well, those are instances in which these behaviors of nations were thus under the control of and were orchestrated by God. Look at the last couple of them. Many times, I suppose, it certainly wouldn't be favorable for some to consider this one, but God raised up kings. 
God handpicked Saul as the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel 9, verses 15 and following. And then when Saul chose to be disobedient, he handpicked his successor David, 1 Samuel 16. God handpicked these men as the leaders of Israel. Could it be that God could then, by His providence, select certain individuals to lead in various places and govern at various levels, locally, statewide, or federally? We know God can do that. May I say, God has again often worked in the characteristics of various governments. And so that leads me to close that slide like this. When empires in the Old Testament, those that again should have known better, chose to behave as they did, God brought enemy nations and crushed them. Not only was that true of Israel, it was true of Judah. We read that in 2, Samuel, or 2 Kings 17 as well as 2 Chronicles 36. Our first two points. Then today, God approves of civil governments and He often uses them in terms of His involvement with them. I thought that that next point maybe was worthy of even a greater elaboration. What about those explicit cases in the Word of God in which God has particularly utilized governments to bring about His will, despite the fact at times these were heathen governments. They were rather evilly recognized people. I would only offer you these thoughts. There are times when I'm sure to the ancient Israelites, the words of Isaiah 45 must have seemed shocking. In that text... There is a man called Cyrus who is not an Israelite. He is a Persian monarch. And he is expressly called the anointed of God. Now doesn't that highlight the fact God's going to use that man? Would Cyrus have honored the God of heaven? In all likelihood, no. He may have worshipped other kinds of deities or beings, and yet God used that man to bring about His will for His people. That's a beautiful thought about the providence of God, isn't it? He can use people even when they aren't willing servants of His. Another example, the kingdom of Assyria. In Isaiah chapter 10, one more time, here is an enemy nation to Israel, and they are called the anointed in my hand. They are a rod that God said, I'm going to use them just like a rod in my hand. I'm going to use them. Not that they would honor me for who I am, but I will use them to bring about my will. Oh, how today we need never forget the greatness of our God. He does rule in the kingdoms of men. He can use civil governments to bring about His will. And in fact, as we close that slide... Perhaps it'd be wise to even mention Nebuchadnezzar. This man the Old Testament holds up as such a tyrant, such a person who at times was greatly opposed to the things of God, and yet God used him. God used him. All of those things bring us to the last segment of the lesson today. And that last segment is going to be this development. So what about... Your position and mine, we aren't living in the days of ancient Assyria, and we aren't living in the days of ancient Babylon. 
and the days of ancient Israel are long past. We live in America. And you and I know the New Testament record, of course, is that which shall stand to the end of time. What should be our approach, or at least our understanding, of government, civil government? The New Testament is not ambiguous about this. Why don't we begin with a text I've asked you to note in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 13. The text says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or, or as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. The overwhelming message, you see, is one of Christian submission to the civil authorities. In a day and time when the book of Peter, 1 Peter, was written, you and I remember the Roman Empire was in full force and the Roman monarchs, the Roman Caesars, were often rather antagonistic to the things of God. You and I well remember Nero, that, that despotic ruler of the ancient era, and to Christians who no doubt were greatly suffering or at least greatly inconvenienced. They were told, you submit, at least as a general record. But that leads me to note the following. That text we noted earlier, to resist that kind of civil government is to resist the power of God. It's to resist His authority because He's approved those, those beings. All of that hastens us to note what's at the bottom. What do you do in those situations in which the edict of civil government is not consistent with the Bible. Peter's just told us you've got to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. What happens in those cases when the declarations of men stand not only in tension to, but even opposed to the statements of God? We have a record in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5 of what happened, and that was the lesson text that Brother Dennis read earlier. What happens in those cases? Revisit those chapters with me, and we certainly won't read all three chapters, but we will make a selection of some of the things that took place. First of all, as far as the background, Peter and John were such that you and I remember the church was very new at this time. Acts chapter 2 is the beautiful record of the church's establishment, and we're only one chapter later than that. Acts chapter 3. As you begin to read in that chapter, you notice that Peter and John came at a certain hour of the day to that gate in the temple. It's often called Solomon's Porch. And they healed a man that was there. He was a lame man. And upon healing him, you'll notice what a sweet record it is. That record highlighted Peter declaring, "'Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk.'" And he did. And he was a well-known individual, and so various peoples in Jerusalem, they knew he'd been lame, and they knew that he'd been an invalid. And they knew the great power of God had brought about the healing of this man. The Jews and others were rather antagonistic to the name of Jesus being sent forth far and near. And so, as a result of that, 
Acts chapter 3 points out the insistence of what they began to assert onto Peter and John. As that chapter closes, a bit of antagonism develops. And in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this description is given. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. The sentiment's easy to appreciate, isn't it? Peter and John and the others that were those new Christians, they were on fire for the truth of the resurrection and for the message of Jesus Christ. And in regard to that lame man and what the no doubt abundant discussion in Jerusalem was, the name of Jesus was spreading like wildfire. And these Sadducees and the temple individuals, they, you'll notice, hauled these Christians in, namely Peter and John and others, and they said, don't you preach anymore in this name. We've heard all of this we want to hear. So here's an instance in which the edicts of men are standing directly opposed to what those Christians understood to be the will of God. I wonder what happened next. Verse number 5, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, these are the authority figures, of course, in Jerusalem religiously, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? You can imagine the tension of that moment. These high-ranking officials, and now they have set Peter and John in the midst. Who gave you the authority? to heal this man like you've done it, and to begin to share a message like this. Next verse. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Do you hear in the words of Peter and of John and of the others a lack in boldness? They had just been told, we don't want to hear the name of Jesus anymore. And that's the very name that Peter calmly and respectfully but boldly utilized. We are examined before you gentlemen this day, and we want you to know that in regard to that impotent man, by the name of Jesus Christ, he was made whole. Let's read on. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Unlearned and ignorant men, to be sure, they weren't schooled in the matters and means that so often were recognized in the day. And yet, it says the text, they marveled. The people marveled. Let's look even further. Verse number 17. 
I'm sorry, verse 16. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. So now their plan B is this. So far, this message that we have sent forth, it has not stopped these people. It hasn't stopped Peter and John. Let's try this. Let's solemnly charge them to speak no more in this name. Verse number 19. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Which is the right thing? We honor your words above that of God. It is in that context. Verse 20 says, We cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because for the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. In the next chapter, this saga continues. Peter and John are still having to deal with these accusations and the choices of those that were opposed to them. Finally, may I turn your attention to verse number 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What has happened? Earlier we noted they charged them, Don't you preach anymore in this name. And in fact, the time even came, they imprisoned them. After God delivered them, do you know where they went? They went back to the very same place and preached the very word that they'd been told not to preach. The conviction in those early saints, wasn't it impressive? As Peter described all of that that took place, verse 28 says, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And then the lesson text is verse 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. In the midst of that kind of discussion, the last part of the lesson will be a mere simple development of that like this. This isn't the only time in the Word of God in which sentiments along that line have been set before us as examples and as reminders that even today, you and I know that there are faithful saints scattered around the world who due to very dire circumstances nonetheless even sometimes due to threat, not only continue to meet, but they honor the God of heaven as they do that because they're convicted, convicted determinedly so, that that's what God wishes. Look at some of these verses. There have been several times in the Bible when those who serve the Lord purposefully did not do what authorities told them to do. We can mention Exodus chapter 1. There the Egyptian Pharaoh specifically told 
the people, you put to death every Hebrew baby, boy. And there were some Hebrew midwives that blatantly refused. Under threat of what would happen to them, it made no difference. They were not going to obey their Pharaoh when it came to a matter like that. That was opposed to the will of God. And later on, aren't those same women held up in high esteem in other parts of the Word of God? In Daniel chapter 2, the monarch Nebuchadnezzar specifically said, every time you hear the music play, you fall down and worship this image. How easy would it have been for somebody to say, well, to protect my life, I'll fall down and do it, but I'm not worshiping in my head. I'm not worshiping that image in my thinking. I'm still going to honor God, but to save my life, I'll do it. That's not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They stood right there openly in plain view amongst countless others, and their faith was evident. So much so, they were hauled in before the authorities, and the authorities did to them exactly what they said they would. In fact, didn't Nebuchadnezzar say, I tell you what, gentlemen, I'll give you one more chance. When you hear the music play, you fall down and worship. And if you don't, I'm going to cast you into a fiery furnace. Do you recall the respect of what those men stated? In Daniel chapter 3, they said, King, we want you to know, and I'm paraphrasing, we want you to know there is a God in heaven. And if it's His will, He will deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if not, it doesn't change the fact we're going to serve the God of heaven, regardless what you say. The determination within the hearts and minds of those three, and later we find it in Daniel, who in a lion's den, he spent some time because he would not neglect to do the things that he understood to be convictions in service to God. That one is perhaps in some ways even more challenging to us, isn't it? The government had signed a verdict in that case. No prayer to any being or deity except the, the, the leader, Nebuchadnezzar, for 30 days. But Daniel had been not only in the habit of, but it had been a part of his life three times every day. He'd open his window and pray directed toward Jerusalem. Wouldn't it have been easy to say, why can't I just go in my closet? Nobody would know. This was an issue that was a conviction in the life and mind of Daniel. He had served the Lord this way, and no government was going to change it. No government was going to alter that course of activity. Of course, Daniel, we remember, was delivered from the lion's den. The king did do to him just what he said he would. But isn't it amazing? When the king looked in, he said that Daniel came forth and he, he was unharmed. That fascinating thought leads me to close that slide like this. We ought to obey God rather than men. In any circumstance or place in which the government would legislate edicts or circumstances or things in which they make those matters that are not consistent with the Word of God, our choice is already made for us. We're going to obey God rather than men in every such case. 
And as you and I close that slide, the language is so very sweet and also so beautiful. Can you just imagine Peter and John? Can you imagine the kind of impact that had an influence upon those who saw that steadfastness and those who were moved by it? It is for that reason we'll close our lesson with a very short development, part of which we've just noted in passing. But it comes near the end of that slide. We love the Lord. And as we strive to appreciate His authority with respect to men, He does, in fact, approve the existence of governments, and He approves the things that in so many cases they would no doubt set forth. But in any case of tension, wherein the things of men stand opposed to those things God tells us, then our decision again has already been made. As we conclude this lesson with this final slide, it would be then good for us to remember that even when difficult times arrive, whatever challenging times that those things may be, you and I have kindred brothers and sisters who lived about 20 centuries ago. And the days and the lives and times in which they lived were not only very different from our own, they were often met with a kind of government that was not only unfavorable to them, but as we learn in the book of Revelation, it often cost them their life. And yet as we strive to be faithful like they were, we longingly appreciate that which motivated them and drove them to behave the way that they did. And as you and I serve the Lord, it's our intent to appreciate that same kind of behavior. Today, as we've assembled on this Sunday morning, this fourth Sunday in the month of March this year, it's our delight to have been able to do so. The understanding that comes with that which we see written time and again in the pages of the New Testament. And today, as we've assembled to encourage and strengthen each other, above all else, we have and shall continue to magnify the cause of God. Because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six we read, when we take of this Lord's Supper in a moment, we are going to declare and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until that trumpet blows, whenever that's going to be. We're excited about the opportunity and the privilege that's ours to loudly exclaim and proclaim how good God has been. At this point, we're going to offer an element of invitation. The Lord, of course, always offers this. It isn't just restricted to times of day like this. But if there would be a need in anybody's life that we could pray for you, a prayer for encouragement, we'd be happy to do that. If you find yourself separated from God and would like to make confession of sin, perhaps as a wayward Christian, we would be happy to do that too. And you could leave this building today closer to the Lord, in fact, faithful to Him. If you have never become a Christian today, in fact, everything's ready to even take care of that too. That's not our device. And by that, I mean it's not our idea. The Bible has indicated you've got to believe in Jesus with all your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And we'd be happy to help you in those ways today. If we could do that in any of these ways, this time of opportunity has been selected, this hymn of encouragement. And while we sing... Why don't you come if we can help you while we together stand and sing?